My goal is not to come, I, I can write speeches, I've done that before, um, but preaching is something different. It's not about coming and giving a report. It's not the core of it. Um, the core in my heart is, is, to, is, to, is to pay attention. I continually, like, like people say, how long does it write, take to write a sermon? You know, I don't know. 24 hours a day, seven days a week is about right. So um, because there's never a part, um, our time together here for both of you guys and me is birthed out of our ongoing encounter with God and, and our encounters and as we wrestle with things throughout a week, right? Right? As you, like, you didn't walk in here and just like everything disappears. You're, you're processing all of the things of your life and, and your week as we come in. And so, so we come in, but our, our goal is to take and submit this to the Father and then ask the Lord to speak back to us. And so I'm going to say the stuff that the Lord put on my heart. Um, but the goal isn't even that you even listen to this. In fact, and I've said it before, I'll say it again today. If you go to sleep in the next 10 minutes and stay asleep for the rest of the service, bless you. It's okay. I, I, I've learned, like, I'm not bothered by that at all. Like, no joke. It's okay. You can go to sleep. Because if you're going to find a place of rest, this had better be an awfully good place to rest. Right? Should be a safe place. If you, if you can go here and not rest or feel like shamed because, or whatever, that doesn't work. Now, hopefully God's engaging with us in such a manner that, uh, that we don't go to sleep. But, but if you do, no harm, no foul. It's okay. Um, so let's just take a moment and pray and we'll, and we'll dive in. So, Father God, as we, as, as we touch your word and, and, and digest some of the things that I, I, at least I believe you're rising up, God, I ask that you would further winnow out that which has no value and just blow it away. But that thing which has substance for each of us individually, I ask that you would place it on our mind and our heart and it would remain with us until we're changed by it so that we walk away different people or we grow to be more like Christ. God, if there's anything that's out of line or not right, just may it forgotten, be forgotten, fall aside. We don't want it. Um, what we want is you and what you would speak to us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, uh, so last week we took an initial look at uh, repentance, and we looked at it in the context of hope. So our hope, I'll say again and again and again, our hope is in Christ. So in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' first direction, this is uh, chapter 1, around verse 15, Jesus' first direction to those who were listening to him was to repent and then believe. Now, it's important that we know what this means so we can pursue obedience to our Lord and so we can know when we've walked the path of repentance. And so this isn't going to be just a nice, clear, cut and dry. We're going to kind of digest this together and probably continue to digest this in some uh, further beyond today. So last week we looked at the, the big bads. Those are the evil things that pretty much everyone would agree are wrong, right? They're just things everybody says, yep, that's bad, that's sin. But then we also looked a little bit at small bads. And these are the evil things that are easy to ignore inside ourselves. And they're also easy to justify inside ourselves as no big deal or even to justify for somebody else. Now, a key shift is that we don't measure right and wrong by what we aren't doing but instead, we are to pursue righteousness as a goal, and it's not attained by rule following, but only accessible in Christ following. And so uh, I'll just parenthetically, um, no, not parenthetically, my brain just went, dra- that was, there's nothing in those parentheses, we'll keep going. Uh, in, in light of this, our, our target is not to be better than the person who's next to us. 
our target is the righteousness of Christ. We can't even move in the right direction unless the Lord is guiding us and filling us to move the way he would direct us, right? This is something we, we really need him. And so, and okay, here's what was in the parentheses. And that is uh, it's just this idea that if, if you're following the law, the Old Testament law, all of this stuff, it had, stuff, had to do with life and well-being and all of these things. It had to do with a, a very ro- low resolution picture of love right? Don't kill people. Well, that's a good step towards love, right? So, so there's a lot of these rules that were, that were ultimately rooted, rooted in love and protection. And yet if we, and, and yet that can't save us, we'll get there. But if we, as we learn to live in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, guided by him, we don't ignore that stuff. We don't like just forget learning about the law. That's, that's not helpful. Um, but we recognize that that doesn't save us. It's a low resolution picture of love. And as we encounter Jesus and he fills us, then the natural thing that's going to come out of us is going to be love, right? If you fill up a pitcher full of Kool-Aid, you're not going to pour out something that's not Kool-Aid. Kool-Aid's coming out. If you fill you up with love, the love of Jesus, what's going to come out? It's going to be the love of Jesus. And the funny thing is, is if the love of Jesus comes out, it's going to not only meet the law, you're going to exceed the requirements of the law. Right. If you go and look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus touched on that just a little bit. Okay. so turn with me, if you will, to Philippians chapter three. That's where we're going to be. Some of these verses are going to be up here Um, and we're going to be looking at just uh, in this chapter. We'll see how Paul points out a a distinction that um, I was just describing. Christianity is not about following the rules and rejecting bad things. Christianity is about choosing Christ as our king and our savior, whom we follow, not just in the general sense but in a moment-by-moment sense. And that's part of, the, part of the transition that I think is absolutely imperative, not only for us to grow in faith and grow with Christ, but honestly, if we're going to move forward in health in the season and the condition of the world, we've got to walk very, very closely with Jesus. Not in just the, I'm a Christian, follow, I follow the Bible or I get some stuff right. We have to be able to walk with Christ in a very personal way. It's a relational thing. And that's more the shift. And so, as I said, we're going to be looking at Philippians 3, verses 1 through 7. So here, verse 1, Paul dives in and he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe or it's good for you. And, and so Paul is saying this is so central and so important that, that he is not bothered at all to repeat it. It would seem this is probably the sort of things he was saying in person to the churches, right? He's going to put it in a letter. He says, this is something I repeat. So he probably told them and probably told all the churches, this is a normal thing that he talks to them about. So this is, this is core stuff. In Philippians uh, 3, 2, he goes on, and this is where uh, Paul sounds like Paul. He says, look out for the dogs, like that one. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's never subtle. Sometimes he's confusing, but he's never subtle. Those who mutilate the flesh. Paul is ferocious when he talks about those who would lead believers to rely on rule following for salvation. There was a debate at the time about what the role of the Mosaic law would be for the developing Christian church. The Jews had ample warnings in Hebrew scripture, the consequences of abandoning God and his law. So they'd been conditioned their whole lives to pursue the Mosaic law. It was the way to honor God. Follow the law. That's how you honored God. And so um, 
Since it was the way to honor God, they were, they were just driven into their culture. Follow the law, memorize the law, recite the law, measure everything and everyone against the law. The law kept the good people safe from the bad people. The law kept the good people good, and it made sure we knew who the bad people were so we could stay away from them. And yet Paul calls them dogs, the people who are driving back to the law. And he piles general evildoers and those who follow the law together in the same big bucket of bad. I don't know, you, I thought the law was good. Right? Ten Commandments? What's wrong with them? Paul first calls them dogs who would drive these believers to trust and law following for God's favor. When he talks of mutilating the flesh, he's talking about circumcision, uh, which is made clear in verse 3, which we'll read. It says, for we are the circumcision. And here he's saying we, the believers, the church, we are the circumcision. And he's redefining what circumcision is. We are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So true circumcision is what we're hearing from Paul. True circumcision is a circumcision of the heart. Now, the word circumcision literally means to cut around. Don't think too hard about this. It means to cut around. And the, the Greek word peridomi is not just a reference to the ceremony of circumcision, but also those who embrace the practice. It's an uncomfortable topic. But the discomfort, I believe, reflects the core of what God is pointing at by giving circumcision to the Jews. There's something even about the discomfort itself that has to do with what God was communicating. Because right in the ceremonies, in, in all of these rites and these, and, and these things that they were doing, they're all a picture of something of a spiritual reality. And so even things like the discomfort of this topic matters. So in circumcision, a knife is taken to a person's intimate, not public parts, and it, a cut is made that changes that person's body forever. The cut around points at the completeness of the change. The fact that it's a change to a person's private parts reflects the life-altering impact of belonging to or surrendering to God. We are to be changed in our innermost parts. It is personal. This is not intellectual. There's an intellect involved. We don't reject our minds. But the core of this is not an intellectual thing. It is very personal. If God remains at arm's length in your life, we aren't letting him and you aren't letting him close enough to truly change you. As I'm sure you're aware, circumcision in the kingdom of God isn't about a physical knife or a physical change to your body. He's intending to change your heart for all of eternity, something permanent, something complete. For the Jews, Paul is redefining true circumcision as a transaction that takes place in our hearts as we surrender to Christ and learn to walk in the spirit. This is part of the new covenant. Now, as Christians, true circumcision, which the way to interact with God is not rooted in how well you follow rules. It's a transfer of relying on ourselves to relying on the Lord. 
if we can live rightly by following the rules better than the next person, then we are still in charge of our lives, which means that Christ is not in charge of our lives. Now, the great danger of the law in Paul's day is the same danger that exists today, and it is to rely on ourselves for success, and ultimately, that puts us in the position of relying on ourselves for salvation. We might not consciously think of that, but I believe that's the core of it. And this is why Paul is so ferocious on this subject. In Romans, we understand that the law cannot save us. It only reveals the sin that is within us and our need for a savior. I'm going to read Romans 7, 7, and this is also Paul writing. He says, what shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So we might not intuitively just grab that. So consider this. If you hadn't been told that driving 65 miles an hour through a neighborhood was against the law, you might be tempted to do it. Now, the consequences could be catastrophic. Following driving laws can help preserve the lives and the harmony on the road, right? This is common sense. You follow, you follow those rules, you drive on the road, it makes everything work better. But even following all the rules doesn't protect you from deadly crashes, right? You could follow every single rule and still die in a car wreck. Rules help, but in the end, rules cannot save you. Paul is fully qualified to talk about the shortcoming of the law because he committed his life to following the law and using it as his ladder of success. Jesus interrupted Paul's journey to show him a way that was completely different. Once Paul met Jesus, he didn't want anyone to miss out on the true life and the freedom by falling to something as dismal as a bunch of rules. I want you to hear in the background, I'm not saying that rules are bad. I'm not saying we ignore scripture. I'm not saying we ignore these things. It has to do with the core of how we're oriented. It has to do with where our salvation lies. In Philippians, I'm going to read uh, verses 4 through 6. And this is Paul talking about himself. He says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. And when he says flesh, he's talking about circumcision. He's talking about the law. He says, I have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel, a tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I'm better than the rest. I'm a Pharisee. As to zeal, I'm a persecutor of the church. As in, I find the heretics, I chase them down, and I get rid of them. As to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. Paul was climbing the ladder of the law, and he discovered that there was nothing at the top. In our lives today, we each stand on different ladders. You probably, if you think of different ladders, this is pretty intuitive, different ladders, you probably uh, know exactly which rung you are on. So in your workplace, um, don't say this out loud, but like who is above you, right? You probably know who's below you. Right. And, and, and so maybe like in my family, my, my children are probably they're they're, they're living in a, a community with uh, they've got seven of them. So each of them has six siblings. And so they probably have an intuitive understanding of where who's good at what, you know. 
and they understand which rung they're standing on. But the real question is, is why are you climbing this ladder? And what is at the top of the ladder that you are climbing? Right? If I'm climbing a ladder, there's often a light bulb on the top. Or a top tree branch I'm going to trim. There's something at the top, maybe the roof. There's, there's something at the top of the ladder. If you're climbing a ladder, what's at the top of this ladder that you're on? What are you trying to get to? And more importantly, what are you expecting that success to set right in your life? When you get there and you get whatever's at the top of the ladder, what's it going to do for you? Now, there may be a few ladders that are very clearly defined. Of course, in our culture, we have uh, uh, those ladders are typically things like our job, our career. Sometimes it's education or a skill. But there might be some more subtle ladders that we've placed our hope in, things that are truly good, but things, things we should be investing in. Uh, but these things can subtly become our source of hope. So, for example, uh, hope in our children and maybe the future of our family, Right? You should be investing in your children. You should be investing in your marriage. You should do a good job when you go to work, right? These are all good things. But the question is, is where are they in our hearts? So consider Abraham. Abraham, um, God promised that he would make Abraham into a great nation. As you recall, he was pretty old. He still wasn't a great nation yet. Um, and God promised that he would do this through his and Sarah's biological son, not an Ishmael, his and Sarah's biological son, Isaac. But you'll remember, God brought Abraham to a place of clarifying that his hope was still in God and not in Isaac. Was Isaac God's gift to Abraham? Yes. Was Isaac a good gift? Yes, he was an amazing gift. Was Isaac um, the fulfillment of God's promise? Yes. There's nothing wrong with Isaac. There's every single thing about Isaac is completely right. And yet, it was important for God. He took him to this place. You remember, up on the mountain. And he asked Abraham if he was willing to surrender Isaac. Isaac was a miraculous gift from God to Abraham and the first tangible evidence that God actually would fulfill his huge promise to Abraham. And yet God expected Abraham's heart to remain faithful to himself above all. He couldn't allow Isaac to replace himself in that relationship, right? Can you see that? It's subtle, right? There's nothing wrong with Isaac. The issue is where Abraham's heart is pointed and where the weight of Abraham's life is. You are supposed to do well at your job, but your provision and your identity are to be found in Christ, not your success at work. You are supposed to invest deeply in your marriage and your children, but your legacy and your identity is to be found in Christ, not the success of your children. And so consider that there are many who have poured their hearts into marriages and children and careers to see them collapse. And sometimes has absolutely no fault of their own. This is a normal life example of how we can shift our weight in subtle ways from Christ to the world and not know that we've even done it. The world will shake, but the kingdom of God will not be shaken. For those who succeed in getting to the top of... Let me go back up. 
Um, here's another parenthesis, and it's not in the notes. I, as I was ruminating on this, I was looking at ways how, how that might manifest in my life. And one of the things as I was thinking about this and I was asking the Lord just to kind of highlight where it might be, I find that um, when one of my children, it's very, very, very rare that any of them disobey or do anything or ever bicker or fight um, at least five seconds between those occurrences. And, and so, but when those things happen, there's this place where, where I have a calling to be uh, a, a disciplinarian, a parent, and I get to set a line. Um, and yet there's a, a danger zone, there's a place where my child, if I rise up in a fence because of what my child is doing, and the offense has to do with me, not them, then it's evidence that what I'm doing is I'm allowing their bad attitude, their immaturity, their wrong to touch my identity. And that's the point where I'm allowing my identity to rest on their behavior. Can you see that? It's a small thing. I still parent. I must parent. It's not about not parenting or do parenting. It has to do with where my identity lies. And I found that when my identity doesn't lie with them and their behavior, then number one, I'm a lot less offended when they're acting like jerks towards each other, um, which um, they are very quickly growing. It is God's mercy. We, we walk with them, and it's, it's encouraging. Um, but with, if they're rude to each other, and that reflects on me, then I become part of the thing, and offense rise up, rises up in me because my identity is now tied to their behavior. And that's not depending on Jesus, right? So I need a parent from the perspective of I'm in Christ. They're on a journey with Christ. I'm shaping them. Can you hear that? Okay, I'll keep on. All right. So for those who succeed in getting to the top of their ladder, they seldom find what they expect. So astronauts, psychological studies, life studies of what happens to astronauts. A lot of times those guys who went to the moon, it wrecked their life. In some ways, when you have flown to the moon and trampled around on the moon and come back, is there any other goal that you can do to outdo yourself? Their career is done. You can't outdo that. And so these 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 guys would come back and they were just suddenly in a, a no man's land. You know, they wander around, sign autographs, have pictures, be in Wheaties commercials or, or whatever it is they do. But now what? And these are highly ambitious, powerful people. Same thing, rock stars. You guys can just boom, go off the top of your head. A long list of rock stars that have lost their lives at their own hands because they got to the top of the ladder and realized it was an empty, empty place. And so those who make it to the top sometimes and often find disillusionment, disappointment, and depression. And so here's what I would invite you to consider. Climb the ladder with Jesus instead. If you're climbing a ladder with Jesus, there isn't a top. And we keep going. And it's about the journey with him. And as long as our hope and our destiny is tied to Christ in eternity, that good story doesn't have to end. Amen? This is a total paradigm shift. So Paul discovered that being good and getting things right could not satisfy the deepest desires of his soul. And when he had an encounter with Jesus, it shifted everything. And he just wants to walk with Jesus. Now, the irony is, is that when we're walking with Jesus, you will do well. You're going to do well. And this isn't about 
pouring out like, you know, in a world, world sense, though that comes too. But it's not about that. It has to do with the wellness of our soul and the joy of our heart. That's a whole other thing. We'll come there a different day. Verse 7, Paul says, Whatever I gain, whatever gain I had from the law in that world, I count it all as loss. I count it as rubbish. It's nothing. It has no value. I'm not interested. It means nothing to me for the sake of Christ. I want Jesus. That's all I want. I found what I needed. It wasn't this. So compared to Christ, there's nothing else had any value for Paul. And so the question is, what have you placed the weight of your life and your peace on? Is Jesus the Lord of your dreams? What Paul described in his heart in verse 7 is an echo of what Jesus had already done. Jesus always goes first. In Hebrews 12, 2, this is a familiar verse. Um, the writer says, look to Jesus, who's the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus did well in his life and ministry. He was excellent. He excelled at all he set his hand to, right? When Jesus was working as a carpenter, he was a good carpenter, right? I'm confident about that. Right. When Jesus spoke, he spoke with elegance. When he when he loved children, he loved them well. When when he was when everything he did, he did with excellence. Jesus willingly laid down his life for all of us, but the righteousness and the beauty of his life was the result of his perfect surrender to the Father. This is something that was not just a moment thing, it's an all eternity thing. We see that in the book of Revelation. It was evidence, I believe, of a circumcised heart. That's also referenced indirectly in the book of Hebrews. Jesus did all that he did with his eyes on eternity. Jesus saw past his momentary experience and pressed toward an eternal purpose and a reward. That was his perspective. Now, Jesus goes first, and he did that so you can do it. We're not Jesus, right? This isn't a a confusing identity, but Jesus laid out a path that we can walk. And then the Holy Spirit enables us to walk that path. And so how does this translate back to us and what's it have to do with repentance? And we'll get there. We're coming right now. So I'd ask, what is your Isaac? What's this really good gift that God has given you that maybe the Lord fulfilled a dream for you? Maybe it's a dream come true. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's an identity accomplishment. Maybe it's simply just a way of life that you are blessed with. God is good. Don't ever deny that. When God's blessed you, say thank you, right? He's blessed us with all kinds of wonderful things. He's given us beautiful gifts from himself because he loves you. Just like he loved Abraham at a promise, he gifted him. He loves you and he's raising you up for his purpose. He doesn't give you give good gifts so you can just consume it upon your lusts, right? It's, that's not his heart. But God is still God and your Isaac will never save you. Your Isaac is good, but it, you actually have an Isaac, Linda. I just realized that she has an Isaac. She was she saw her Isaac yesterday. So if a dad gives a son a go-kart, <clears throat> it's the difference between the dad and the go-kart, right? Is there any value comparison between a dad and a go-kart? The right answer is no, just in case you're wondering. There's no difference. It qualitatively is so different. So now I'm going to go talk about repentance. We're, and we're, going to, we're going to get there real quick. Repentance is changing our hearts, our minds, our actions, and our lives to align with God. Any place that he shows us that we're out of line. Any place. 
You don't have to wait for a big giant sin. We can repent over small things. Today, we'll invite the Holy Spirit to name our Isaac and reveal to us if we've turned from our first love in order to find comfort in the gift that he's given us instead of him, right? Because our first love is to be Jesus. Our first love is the Lord. Amen? Right? And so this is something he gets to stir in us and raise up. So I'm going to share just briefly five parts of repentance. And then, um, and then, then we're going to close in a prayer built on this. And so this is the path that you'll revisit and we'll need to revisit many times. This isn't a you do it once it's done. This is something that's built into our way of being where we need it. Number one is conviction. God will reveal where you are wrong. Have you anybody experienced this? Everybody should raise your hand. This is even if just make it up. Yep. So uh, God will reveal where you are wrong. And so remember, God's conviction hurts because sometimes the truth hurts. But as a call, it comes as a call to be clean before him. Shame, on the other hand, will tell you that you failed. Therefore, you're a failure. Therefore, you should give up. Conviction calls you up. Shame pushes you down. So if you're feeling shoved down, that's shame. Leave it alone. But if you feel conviction where God says, this is out of line and I've made you for something better, pay attention. Number two, confess your sin. This is about getting very, very honest with yourself and God. It's hard to be honest with God if you're not also honest with yourself, right? Common sense. So repentance is rooted in truth. And I would argue that a partial truth becomes only a partial shift in your heart. If we're partly honest with ourselves, if we're partly honest with God, then that allows for a shift in the part that we're honest about. God's inviting us to be very honest. This has to go back to that vulnerability. Number three, receive forgiveness. We have to talk to Jesus about this. Jesus covered your sin with his death, and we must never treat this lightly. Number one, you're never going to earn it. And so we rest in his forgiveness, but we don't count it as nothing. His forgiveness to you might be free, but it wasn't free for him. Right? And so we talk to Jesus and ask for his forgiveness. Number four is we turn to Jesus and we allow the Holy Spirit to shift our hearts. I don't know about how many of you just tried to, like, <laughs> this is the right month of the year, to take up a new habit or something. Uh, I know that New Year's resolutions are actually falling aside. There have been studies. People are like, we don't care anymore used to be a big thing, but, um, but, uh, but have you just like tried to shift yourself and you're just to start some new habit? That's some big thing. The answer is all of us have probably, yeah. And, and it kind of works sometimes works, but a lot of times we kind of go for a while and it's like, yeah. And so this is where we need the Holy spirit to shift our hearts because where our heart is oriented is where we're going to go. It's going to manifest in our life and we need God to change our heart. And so allow the Holy Spirit to shift your heart. Deep repentance is the result of God's work in your heart. And it's a change like circumcision. It's a partnership of him enabling us to be different. But you get to say yes, right? He doesn't, he doesn't come. Just think about Mary. When the, when the Gabriel came, she had to say yes, right? God does the work. He does the power. He does it. He's the one that changes. He's the one that knows the answer. And we say, yes, we're almost there. Number five, at that point, continue to choose Christ. In Galatians 5, um, Paul talks about this. Um, continue to choose Christ. When the Lord shifts your heart, you'll very likely and very quickly face a temptation to go back the other direction. 
I know I've experienced this. I'm probably not the only one. But God has gifted you freedom so you can stay free. He set you free so you would be free. So choose freedom. And he's not going to set you free, enable you to be free, and you can't do it. When he changes your heart, sets you free, forgives you, stay free. And it has to do with uh, surrender and choosing that. Okay, now we're going to close in just a prayer and, we're, and we'll, we'll be done. And so I'm going to, we're going to pray this. I invite you to pray this prayer with me, if you will. And it's built around this. And this is just a model. It's not magical. So God, I am deeply thankful for the wonderful gifts you've granted me in my life. You have been very good to me. But Lord, I realize I've allowed my heart to love your great gift to me, but my heart has drifted. I've allowed your kind gifts to take first place in my heart instead of you. And I am wrong. This has led me away from you, and it's a deeper sin than I realized. Jesus, please forgive my sin. Not because I am good enough, but because you are. And Holy Spirit, please realign my heart toward Christ. I surrender to your work in me. Give me a pure heart and the strength I need to remain faithful to you. Thank you, Father, for the Isaac you've given me. And today I entrust your promises, my Isaac, back to you, and I return to you with my whole life. In Jesus' name, amen.